Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. Then it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls. And it was like, you don't have to give us a ride. You can't fill us no. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. They got close enough where he said he could see, you know, their eyes and and how intelligent they seem. This doesn't look right. The adrenaline type creature. This doesn't look right. No pupils, no iris. Three fingers, three long fingers. And this is when the mental torture. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. Welcome back, guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. It's been about three weeks since we've been in the studio. Can you really? believe it's been that long? Holy crap, no. Welcome to 2018, everybody. Going to be a good one. We promise. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. <laughs> I'm not Adam's very, non-committal. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not committal or leaning on a little bit optimistic. So how was your... Uh, how was your... Christmas time, Rob. Christmas was awesome, man. Cooked a bunch of good food, you know. Yeah. Just me and Alyssa and the kids, and it was good. And then we had a big New Year's Eve party. You were here for well, that. That was great. Yeah. yeah. We, I we, hear it was awesome. D- yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I really want to know how you did it. Did you remember me actually being there? I remember. Yeah. I remember you getting here. Because I do want to say to the audience that, like, okay, I get this text. Now I'm working till about nine o'clock, right? And I, you know, I was scheduled till around nine forty-five, and I was trying to get out early. And Rob, you texted me, and you said, "You said what time are you going to be here?" And I said, "I'm trying to get there by 10. Well, I ended up getting here by nine thirty, right? But you texted me and said something like, "Oh, we're going to be, we're we're going to be spent by then, or something like that." And I'm like, "It's New Year's Eve. <laughs> you got to at least wait till midnight." <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we were still awake. We just were, you know. 
a little toasty. A little toasty. We, we had like full discussions too. Do you not remember any of our discussions that we had? Nah, did I sound smart? You did sound pretty smart. <laughs> That's amazing. You did. I remember Luke showing up after you and I remember giving him a hug. Yeah. I don't remember, I don't remember singing any karaoke though. I'm sure it happened. It, it did happen. It did happen. I, I don't know if anybody recorded it, but uh, it was a pretty rowdy good time. We definitely, you know, uh, we need to do a, we need to do some more karaoke. We may have an event coming up very yeah, soon will. that will lend itself to that. And if someone here will record it, maybe we'll put that up as the end song of that event. <laughs> hint, hint. Um, yeah. We got to see your band play yep. again over there at Twin Cakes too. Of which you do have a gig coming up here in a few days, right? Yes, January 18th at Twin Cakes 2 in Nashville. Right. It's January 9th as we record this. And... Oh, wow. Is that next week? Yeah, it's next week, man. You got like a week and two days. Oh, that's not good. No. Well, see, you keep losing keyboard players, too. They keep falling off the face of the earth. Yeah, every gig we've had a different one. It's 80s band. You have to... like. It's funny, okay, <laughs> me and the drummer were at work the other day, and we happened to run into a fellow named John Oates, you may have heard of. The John Oates? Yes. You actually have a funny story about that, by the way. You need to, you need to tell the audience that story. Oh, I don't know how to tell that one. But I think I did tell that one before. Anyway, so we, we were talking to him, and, and Ed, the drummer for our band, he's like, hey, John, we have an 80s band, you should come out and uh, sing with us sometime. He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Like, you, guys, you guys do any? You guys do any Hall and Oates? And, and Ed was like, "Yeah, we're we're talking about doing a Rich Girl, possibly, but we're not sure." And he's like, "Well, what's the holdup?" And I was like, "Well, we don't really have a keyboard player." <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, yeah." Does he play keyboard? No, but it, you know, I mean, all those songs were pretty heavily. He plays mostly guitar, I think. I'm sure he well, plays everything, but well, I was just I was just saying when I was there that I really thought that you guys are pretty tight as a four piece. You and Ed and Jeff and what's the other Jen? Jen? Yeah, you know, it, I thought you guys were pretty tied as a four piece. And like some of those songs, even though yeah, they're '80s songs, you don't really need the keyboards. I know, but it would as add much so much. Of oh, it to, would like, those big fat synths. Because like you had uh, who was the first ki- kid that you had? Leland. He was Leland. amazing. Yeah, and That's then you had this us. other dude that was really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was just sitting in for that one show though. He didn't. And then this other this this other chick that was there, she didn't get to practice as much with you guys. Yeah. So is she still gonna be with you for the next one? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. It's a mystery. It's kinda like getting Luke here. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like a huge chore. Yeah, I, I texted him today and said, Are you off tonight? And he said, No, go to work. And I keep reminding him, we'll get off Tuesdays and you'll be part of the podcast again. But, guys, we have a guest that I'm uh, super excited about. I'm not going to say much more about it, but because, you know, there's always that off chance that, you know, the guest may not show. (laughs) I don't want to jinx everything, but I do want to read something, and I'm going to kind of do something a little bit different because this is a long article, and I kind of want to get it all out there. Uh, I ran across this earlier in the week. So I'm going to read some of this now, and I want to read some of it in the outro. And I kind of want to get your opinion on this, Rob, because I thought this was interesting. This is from 
Oddly enough, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Do you know what the Southern Poverty Law Center is? I do not. Okay. Southern Poverty Law Center is this organization out of North Carolina, I believe. It's either North Carolina or Alabama. I can't remember. But they they keep a watch on hate groups like the Ku Klux Klan and anti-Islamic groups and anti-gay groups and all these different groups. Okay, that's what they do. Um, they're like a legal resource center. Well, I thought it interesting that they tackled some some subjects that we normally talk about on this show. And this is from an article called Close Encounters of the Racist Kind. Um, so let's dig into this. Okay. The modern far right is crisscrossed with pseudo-scientific research into lost Aryan super-civilizations, biblical giants, ancient astronauts, and the occasional interdimensional alien. On December 6, 1830, Andrew Jackson, whose house is just down the street from us, used his second State of the Union address to defend the Indian Removal Act, the administration's sole legislative victory. He described the law promulgating the expulsion and resettlement of southeastern Native American tribes as the happy consummation of U.S. Indian policy. To his critics who wept over the fate of the Aborigines and who, it turned out, accurately predicted the horrors of the forced migrations known collectively to history as the Trail of Tears, which actually came through here and was at a big part of the history where I'm from, Chattanooga, Jackson offered an archaeology lesson. Any melancholy reflections were ahistorical, he said, because the Indians were neither innocent victims nor first peoples, but perpetrators of what Jackson's modern admirers might call white genocide, quote-unquote. Jackson knew this because the evidence was everywhere in plain sight. In the monuments and fortifications of an unknown people, we behold the memorials of a once powerful race, said Jackson, exterminated to make room for the existing savage tribes. This reference to a once-powerful race was not lost on the American public of 1830. Every schoolboy and girl knew it to be the lost race of the mound builders, believed to be the continent's original Caucasian inhabitants. From the colonial era into the 20th century, it was widely accepted that certain earthen structures and burial grounds proved the existence of white or Indo-European peoples who settled North America only to be wiped out by the arrival of Jackson's savage Asiatic tribes. As the country expanded west, the mound builders' myth had obvious utility. If the Indians destroyed earlier ways of white settlers, their own extermination was just another turn of history's will. In the early 1890s, the U.S. ethnologist Cyrus Vance discredited the theory in a series published by the Smithsonian Institution, but the idea of a pre-Columbian white genocide never disappeared. It survived in subcultures influenced by the occult and Atlantis legends, which clung to theories of lost ancient super-civilizations that curiously always seemed to be racially white. In recent decades, as evidence of a rather of a richer Paleo-American record than previously realized had come to light, Jackson's once powerful race has found a new generation of boosters on the far right, where fantasies of white genocide distantly past and currently unfolding are an animating obsession. In the fractured and constantly cross-fertilizing galaxy of extremist conspiracy culture, the white mound builders, now known on the far right as the Solutrians, 
share a stage with other characters from an ancient and racially glorious but suppressed past. Ancient Nordic-looking astronauts, biblical Aryan giants, Nazi scientists under the South Pole, and the occasional interdimensional alien in league with the Jews. Okay, any questions so far? No, I think it's pretty cut and dry. Okay, <laughs> okay. Okay, it goes on. Odd history goes prime time. Over the last decade, the History Channel has exploited and fueled the popularization of alternative archaeology or alt history. Numerous programs on the network showcase ideas that, while not explicitly racist or anti-Semitic, have origins in colonial projects and have been championed for a reason by modern extremists. Take America Unearthed, which we had the host on the on this Funny show a couple bring of times. Up Scott Walter, yeah, which aired between 2012 and 2015 on H2, a defunct History Channel network. That show's host, a geologist named Scott Walter, promoted theories that ancient Celts and Scots settled North America and hybridized Native Americans centuries before Columbus. The details can be found in Walter's contributions to Lost Worlds of Ancient America, a 2012 anthology edited by Frank Joseph, born Frank Collin, member of the Nationalist National Socialist Party of America. In 1993, following his expulsion from the party for impure blood, Colin became editor of Ancient American Magazine and has authored dozens of books dealing with ancient suppressed history. In another episode, when a guest professes aberration for the Knights of the Golden Circle, a group of wealthy Southerners who sought to create a hemispheric slave empire, Walter just nods. Walter has denied that he or his ideas are racist and claims to be politically, politically liberal. And I'm going to say right here, I don't think Walter's racist. Okay, I, I think this article is slightly biased. I'm going to say that because I think Southern Poverty Law Center before you brought is him slightly up, biased. Before you brought him up, I was going to bring him up because when we saw right. him in uh, Minneapolis, he mentioned that as well. He's like, you know, I've been right. called racist for these ideas. I, I, I'm not a racist. I'm not saying that, you know, white people were here first and this is our country. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, oh, here's some interesting evidence that there were um, – explorations here prior to what are believed to be the earlier explanation or you know explorations however i do think that his material might have been used that way by other people sure however you do have to be careful though about who's asking you to write for an anthology obviously true because the person that he was he wrote an essay for in this anthology was a founding member of the national socialist party of america that looks really bad <laughs> okay <laughs> like my mom always warned me like you know you don't hang out with those kids you'll get associated with them right exactly exactly so if scott walter says well the scots and the celts and you know i think that he let, let, i'll say this okay i was going to bring this up a little later but i think this is the place to do it i'll say this i think that there definitely was some pre-Columbian, and by pre-Columbian means before Columbus, there was some pre-Columbian contact between Europeans and the New World, the people of the New World. Now, that doesn't make me a racist. It doesn't make Scott Walter a racist. It just means that we think that there's some evidence that points to that, right? So... 
So if there is evidence that does point to it, that doesn't necessarily mean that doesn't necessarily mean that we're saying that well, it's because white people, you know, reign supreme over the whole planet, even though that was used in a previous right. time to justify that. Right. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it's a pretty far leap from saying that you think somebody somebody on a ship might have managed to make their way here and back. You know, sure, because saying that they lived here and ruled here and were overcome by Asian yeah. tribes or whatever. Because we know we know that the Vikings were in Newfoundland, right? right? That they, you know, they settled Iceland first. They went to Greenland and then they went to Newfoundland and they kind of made this little island hopping b- business that they did. And eventually, supposedly Newfoundland, they had to abandon what they called Vinland originally. That's been established. That's factual. Okay. So that's around the year 1000 AD. So if that information was sent down to people in the British Isles, which wasn't hard to think that that, that, that would have been at some point, people reading these sagas, these Norse sagas, and they would have said, well, we're trying to escape the king or we're trying to escape some kind of religious persecution. So we're going to try to find this place. That's not far without the realm of possibility that that would happen, in my opinion. So if the Welsh did it in the 12th or 13th century, what's, what's different about Columbus is that Columbus has a sponsor of a state behind him, which is Spain, right? And that's when the act of colonization starts. It, whatever was before that were independent, were people working independently and wanting to escape some greater authority, which is what the Vikings were. They were, you know, they, they went to Iceland, they established a colony there. Well, a certain group runs afoul of this other of of the of another group, and so they they leave and they sail a little further west and they go to Greenland, and either they get bored or they run afoul of some other group, so they go over to Vinland, which is now Newfoundland. So, you know that makes sense to me, right? But on the other hand, there are people that will try to you know like obviously this Frank Joseph character, they're using this to say well. The white people were here first before the Native Americans, which is ridiculous. It's absurd. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it continues. Uh, which I would like to get this person on the show at some point. Whatever the personal politics of the host, these shows serve as vectors for racist ideas and scholarship, argues the independent scholar Jason Colavito, which actually gave us a very nice write-up when we had Scott Walter on the show. Yeah, it got us a lot of attention. <laughs> who had been who has been tracking this cultural crossover and amplification of French history for years? In books like Foundations of Atlantis, Ancient Astronauts, and Other Alternative Pasts, Colavito explores and debunks many of the ideas promoted on the History Channel and far right websites alike. 
These shows serve as entry points for discredited 19th century ideas and point viewers toward the sources of extremist pseudo-scholarship and politics, says Colavito. The idea that aliens built the pyramids isn't so funny when it draws young people to websites that quickly switch out aliens for Jews and start talking about gas chambers. Shows like America Unearthed are heavily discussed on white nationalist alt-history forums, as well as general far-right political sites like Stormfront. They are routinely, routinely praised for introducing viewers to variations on the Solutrean hypothesis and raising the profile of racist pseudo-scholarship. Consider the H2 series In Search of Aliens, which before its demise promoted the work of Jan Udo Holy a German writer whose anti-Semitic books have been banned across Europe. Holy's pen name, Jan von Helsig, is a blunt Dracula reference, i.e. Jews are bloodsuckers. The History Channel's long-running series, Ancient Aliens, meanwhile, features David Childress, whose books cite and build on the work of James Churchward, who promoted an ancient empire called the Lost Continent of Mu, M-U, whose dominant race was an exceedingly handsome people with clear white or olive skin. Now, all that is fantasy. All that's fantasy. It's just pure speculation and fantasy. There's nothing that com- that com- that that justifies or supports any of that. And a lot of that stuff comes from channeled information too, which you know is not going to be considered reliable by the scientific or archaeological establishment. Right. Let me just put that out there too. At the same time, when this material, someone. Uh, talks about this material or what they have discovered or what they are speculating. You can't really help when something that you are researching or that you are putting out there is put forward by some other group to support their own racist ideas. You can't necessarily help that because that's going to happen, especially in the, with the, with in the, in the time of the internet. So while the appeal of these theories has roots in Jacksonian justification for manifest destiny, their current manifestations are closely intertwined with the venomous persecution complexes that motivate the modern far right. Pseudo-histories feed the self-importance and aggrievement of neo-Nazis and alt-right folks, says Benjamin Radford, a fellow with the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, who has written widely on pseudo-history and claims of paranormal activity. They feel their rightful place in the world has been denied them by big archaeology, by Jews, by an oppressive government. There is another source of the far right's far-out ideas about ancient history, one that requires no psychologizing. God, that's... (laughs) We did do those, um, those verbal exercises before, right? Yes. The Nazi Connection. The basic tenets of alt-archaeology and alt-history were foundational to the ideology and program of National Socialism, but the Nazis did not invent them. That's a true statement. We talked about some of that a little bit with Dr. Eric Kurlander in the show about Hitler's monsters. The Nazi belief in a pure Aryan race with a glorious ancient past and distinct genetic history was central to a transatlantic 19th century occult scene that featured a heavy German influence. After Hitler assumed power, this belief was institutionalized in the form of the Ancestral Heritage and Teaching Society, or the Anunnaba, an alt-archaeology research outfit founded by Heinrich Himmler and the Atlantis theorist Hermann Wirth. 
under the banner of the Annerba, Nazi explorers fanned out across Europe and the globe in search of relics holding possibly supernatural hints of ancient Aryan glory. In 1938, a team was dispatched to Iceland in search of the lost Aryan civilization of Tula, which Nazi leaders discovered in an Icelandic epic poem. Among the Nazis' interest in Tula were the legends of a race of ancient Aryan giants. Versions of this myth remain common among biblically-focused alt-historians like Steve Quayle and L.A. Marzulli. Let me defend L.A. Marzulli. Okay? There's a lot that I disagree with him about. But he's not a Nazi. <laughs> and his looking at the giants is more from is from a biblical point of view, not to support the Nazis. Now, Steve Quayle, I, I don't really know. But Ellie Marzulli, I, I think lumping Marzulli in under the under the heading here of the Nazi connection is a little misleading. Kind of a cheap stab. Yes. Belief in these legends were, was possible because of the Nazis' sharp rejection of the Enlightenment, dismissing the science of racial diversification and the archaeological record. They, re- they reveled in symbology, myths, and legends of pure ancient kingdoms that conquered the world under its symbol, the swastika. This, the Nazis believed, explained the symbol's presence in both Native American and Indian art, which the Nazis were completely wrong about, by the way. The, they borrowed the swastika. It wasn't the other way around. Right. So they were making their own <laughs> mythology on that one. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The Salutrians and the original white genocide. In the U.S., the average member of the far right is likely more familiar with the modern version of Jackson's race of the mound builders known as the Salutrians. Now, that sentence is interesting. Is likely more familiar. We don't know, but they might be. So we just assume that they are more familiar. Okay. Getting to my, getting, I I should have been an English major, I guess. The name (laughs) is taken from a hypothesis first promoted in the 1930s by the American archaeologist Frank Hibben, who discovered arrowheads in North America that predated the earliest Native American culture known at the time as the Clovis, which we drove by, incidentally, if you remember. The arrowheads argued Hibben resembled those of the Salutrians, a Stone Age people who inhabited southwestern Europe. Most of the field quickly dismissed the similarity as meaningless, but Hibben found adherents among those yearning for a new and more scientifically respectable version of Jackson's once powerful race. For them, the arrowheads and other contested findings proved that European, quote unquote, Salutrians migrated to America across the northern ice shelf millennia before the Mongoloids, as Salutrian adherents are apt to describe Native Americans. This is a second punchline to white nationalists continuing to hold up the Salutrians as victims of a prehistoric white persecution drama. Most scholars believe the Salutrians preceded racial diversification and their arrowheads are artifacts of a dark-skinned people not long out of North Africa. Okay. Here's where it gets weird for me. Not that the whole thing's not weird anyway. In the 1990s, there was a 
skeleton found in Kennewick, Washington. And they did a reconstruction of what this, they called it Kennewick man, looked like. And he ended up looking like Patrick Stewart. <laughs> or Catherine Picard, one of the two. Uh, it's Professor X, homie. Professor X, Professor X, yeah. Or the guy from Danner. It's caliber. <laughs> anyway. Which I saw a terrible movie with Patrick Stewart in it called Life Force the other day. That's that's a whole other story. Anyway. So there was this whole stink about that they said that he was being portrayed as white because they said that he had European features. Well, I think later later it was determined that it was determined that he actually was of a whole other group of people that was neither European nor Native American ancestry. But this was a group of people that came to the units that came to the area of the United States and died out. Now, but still Homo sapien. Like, but still Homo sapien. Okay. Right. Right. Because there are these weird groups of people that nobody knows where they came from. Like the Basques in Spain, nobody knows where they came from. Like their language has nothing to do with the rest of, of Europe. Like they they're just they're just this this weird holdout from humans are from bizarre resourceful creatures. Right. I mean, right. Like once we took hold, like we just right. We don't. Who knows? Like there might have been spreading and then dying out and then spreading and spreading and dying out, but long before like we really right master. You know, precisely. Yeah, and. So, what's interesting about that, to me, is if we found out, conclusively, through archaeology, that there was this group of European people that came to the area of the United States that long ago, would that be just swept under the rug because we're so sensitive to all the racism now? Would we let both the 19th century bias and now our own 21st century bias get in the way of what's actually, what actually could have happened? Now, that doesn't mean that the Native Americans weren't here first, but it seems like that there is a real, like there's a real almost like disconnect there. You know, like, like, are we just kind of, or, or, and, I, and I'm not speaking against multiculturalism. I'm just saying that would we let that influence our viewpoint or would we let the science speak for itself? You know, this, this is really complicated what's being said here. Do you yeah. see, do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I wanted to interject in the middle, but I didn't want to interrupt you. But like, there's um, I did feel that that sort of before he even brought up Scott Walter, the whole um, you know, going out and having different ideas and different thoughts, and especially people that have good evidence and good reason to to believe some alternate theories here and there. Like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Groups grabbing a hold of that and running with it for their like you know, narrow-minded right? bullshit agenda, that's wrong. 
you know, but you got to draw a line somewhere in the middle there. Like you can't just lump them all into like this, this evil right wing, like whatever. I don't remember how you yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. kind of. Well, it's collective. it's it's kind of like this. Here's the idea: is a more like. They're, what they're saying is, is that these people, every, that all these people, L.A. Marzulli, Scott Walter, any David Hatcher Childress, any of these guys that are looking at this, that they're all Nazis and they're all these all virulent right wingers, which is very much in line with the kind of stuff that Southern Poverty Law Center will do. They will they will cast people sometimes rightfully and sometimes wrongly as being this. Okay. So the thing is, is like, okay, although maybe, yes, Nazis have this idea, it doesn't mean that those researchers, all those researchers are Nazis. It's like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. But if you read this and you're just John Q public and you like, you one of these guys, you know, well, you know. I don't like Trump either. But if you're like, oh, I hate Trump and I hate the the alt right, I don't like him either. But if you read this article, you're like, oh well, you know, hey, Elliot Marzulli and Scott Walter, they're all, you know, they're all Nazis, right? You know, well, yeah, that's that's casting, that's casting people, you know, in and that they're that, casting people into into a wrong mold. Yeah, and that's that's been happening for well, I've seen a lot the past year at least, but. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like the guy that emailed me that yeah, the Augie Nost show, or not email me, but send me a message on Facebook. And I, I don't engage with these people. I don't. Whether it's the people that send me emails about how much of a genius Trump is, or it's the people that say that you know we're, you know, we need to choose a side. <laughs> um, I don't engage with these people. We're not at war. <laughs> because it's not constructive. But, you know, the Augie Nost show where he made the statement that he gets his news from RT. Well, this guy really took offense to that. And out of all the weird shit that Augie Nost said on that show, that right. was the one thing that he picked up on. Which, and we even, in the outro, <laughs> in the outro we, we even were like, uh, so yeah, let's throw some disclaimers out there and pick this apart a little bit, you know? Right. We but like, that was win. the least to me. But apparently to that person, it just, it just triggered them. And although this article, and I'm going to read the rest of it in the outro, because, uh, you know, we're yet to get to Atlantis aliens and ancient astronauts, which... Uh, you know, oh God, and then UFOs <laughs> and and anti-Semitism and Nazis, the Hollow Earth. You know, there's still a lot. There's still a few more things that we can kind of explore with this. But this article brings up some good points. But the individuals that they are choosing, because they are high profile, they're choosing they're choosing to include in it, aren't necessarily Nazis. Like we had Scott Walter across the table from us, tell us, you know, he's not a Nazi. Now, we can fault him, like we said, for allowing his writing to be included in a book that was published by a neo-Nazi, but that doesn't necessarily make the guy a Nazi. Right. You know? So, I think it's just another part of the poisoned atmosphere that we're in. But I do see 
like we talked about with I talked about with Michael Hughes a few episodes ago that there is in the in the conspiracy world and in some of these podcasts and and some of you know that there is a lot of this kind of like there's anti-semitism under the rug and racism under the rug and there's a lot of this stuff that's there and um it is it does concern me but not necessarily with the people that it's talking about in this article. That's it. I mean, and then also too, if we're going to allow, if we find evidence that there was just hypothetically evidence that there was a European influence somewhere in the distant past, are we going to throw that out? Because no, we can't have that because that's going to open up a can of worms. It's just like this article that came out uh, on the reverse of this that that said, well, human beings didn't rise in Africa, which was a misleading article or a misleading title of the article because really what it was talking about was some ancient human ancestor way before we split off from the rest of the apes <laughs> that lived in Bulgaria or something where they found some teeth. Ah. But if you're going to read that and you're some, you know, you got your Make America Great Again hat on, you're like, well, see, I told you. I told you we ain't from Africa. <laughs> it's misleading. And there's some misleading language in this article, too. So I'll just leave it there. Yeah. Welcome to 2018, guys. It's more complicated than last year. <laughs> but okay. it doesn't have to be. We will pick this up on the other side. Guys, we're going to go to the guests, and we will be right back on Conspiranormal. All right, guys, uh, we're back here on Conspiracy Normal, and uh, we have a guest here with us that uh, we're very happy to have on, and uh, that is uh, Richard Lloyd, who was the guitarist in television, and he has a book out called called Everything is Combustible. And Richard, welcome to the show. Welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Hi, glad to be here. How are you? Good. We're glad to have you here. Uh, I wanted What's to- the latest? In psychopharmacology, <laughs> I mean psychic psychic uh, references. Well, I wouldn't know too much about that. I'm not I'm not an expert on it or anything. But, oh, good. Okay. But what I but what I kind of wanted to uh, to pistachio. What's that? I'm looking at a pistachio. A pistachio. An extraordinary nut. Yeah, it escaped, and I just found it. And it's kind of green and yellow and brown and not salted. <laughs> but I'm not going to eat it. I'm just, I'm just going to look at it. It looks kind of like a shoe with a green sole. I gotcha. S-O-U-L. Okay. Yeah, I wrote a book. It's a memoir. Yeah? It's based on 
if, if anything, it's based on the idea that uh, that a memoir doesn't have to be just external events, but it's also the internal re- reflection that one has as one passes through life. I kind of based it on the, the idea of it on uh, a combination of um, just telling stories from my life and Carl Jung, his uh, autobiography, which spoke very little about the outer life, spoke about his uh, real insides. And uh, I felt a real, I feel a real affinity with that. What does the title mean to you? Everything is combustible. Well, you think about it. Everything burns except the noble gases. Mm -hmm. I like science. So, but everything else is, uh, you know, why do you take antioxidants when you're old? Because oxygen facilitates combustion and combustion is burning and you burn out. You know, that's why you die, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Body. A car rusts. That's combustion. Yeah. Sea turns a rock and that's a kind of friction. It's a sl- very slow combustion. So everything is combustible. Except for maybe helium, neon, argon, the noble gases. Because they're chemically filled up. They're happy. They're called duet happy and or octet happy. They're musical. They have uh, a full scale of uh, notes for the electrons, and then they're satisfied and they don't interact with anything else. So oxygen doesn't work on them. It works on carbon and uh, and on metals and on hydrogen, of course. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the Graf Zeppelin blow up. Everything blows up. We're on the edge of the Big Bang. Even now. Do you believe in the Big Bang? I believe in the Adam? Big Bang. I believe in the Big Bang. Well, it's still banging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're still expanding, every, right? It's still going on. Everybody is literally on the edge of a giant explosion. We're all being hurtled. In, you know, through the Big Bang process. It's not over by any means. And we don't know whether it'll expand until it turns into darkness and uh, loneliness and nothing, or whether it'll eventually turn into something else, maybe in through a black hole. I don't know. Yeah. You know, the Hindus believe that there are many universes, and they, uh, they're considered the breath of Brahma the creator God, Brahman. And so he exhales the universe and then he inhales it back in and then takes a rest. He goes to sleep. You talk about in your book about kind of like this, uh, the Bodhisattva aspect. You kind of feel like that that's kind of who you are or, you know, do you, the what, the, what? the, the yeah, the Bodhisattva. The the Bodhisattva from the, the, the concept from Hinduism and Buddhism. Yeah. 
Yeah, I tell, at one point, I, I mean, I'm very much into Eastern religions, and uh, I'm into Hinduism and Tantra and yoga, and uh, I don't think real yoga is practiced in the United States. I think it's called, it's something, it's basically relaxation coupled with gymnastics. Right. That's not yoga. Right. Yoga is, uh, yoga is what is called a, a sacrificial it's the, the devoted to release from the confines of the natural world. Yeah. Through the awakening of the life force. Zitali- then leaves the body and merges with, with the cosmic. Yeah, more more meditative, less stretching and stuff. Yeah. That's classical yoga. Yeah. Patanjali, you know, the Yoga Sutras, which talks about, you know, not thinking, not uh, not dreaming, not anything. That's really, really hard. Same in the Chinese uh, Taoist tradition. Yep. Uh, I'm very much fond of those, like um, The Secret of the Golden Flower, where it talks about turning the light around. And that's the light of consciousness which usually goes out towards its objects. But you, in order to create a golden flower, or let's say in order to create an, an adamantine body, that diamond body of Buddhism, one has to turn that consciousness in on itself and examine itself and then disappear in itself. There are a lot of steps, of course, in that yoga, and one of them is preparing the body for the influx of energies, which is what hatha yoga or hatha yoga, which really means violence or by dint of will. That's what hatha yoga means. It's actually hatha. Their goal is kaivalya, which is absolute freedom. Do you think that's similar to the Jungian philosophy of like the shadow and accepting the shadow and the... Sure. When you get to the full process of having uh, come into individuation, that's what he calls it. Yeah. You become an individual. I mean, most people are just patchwork quilts of other people's ideas, and there's very little of themselves in there. And if if you're not uh, beholden to this in what's called the Indra's net. It's the sociological interweave of hypnotic trance that everyone is in. And it's uh, mutually self-supported, so it's very difficult to get unhypnotized to that. One has to uh, escape. And Ramakrishna liked it to... uh, a fisherman's net that no fish can jump out of. You talk about and, it in the uh, book. Gajif. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you talk about it in the book about remembering your own birth. And it's like very few people in the world that actually can can do that. There's can, nothing to be done. It's just, you know, it's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> it just I, happened. It just happened to me. I mean, I have memories of being in a place that was constrained by much, many fewer laws. And I, in my, you know, as I've grown older, I think it's womb memories uh-huh. because you're floating in the fluid. And so there's not the gravity, you know, weight. You don't feel the weight. And so there's a kind of bliss in, in, in that. And I think that was what my earliest memories are that I tried to get back to. And everybody, you know, when the sexual energy gets turned on at puberty, everybody's trying to go back to the womb anyway. Yeah. One way or another. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. What's, uh, what do you remember, though? What do you remember from your birth? Like, what was the sensation that you remember? I remember the remember? put a hat on me. Uh-huh. And I didn't like the hat, like the way it felt. And then I was kind of groggy, and, and I went to sleep. And the next thing I knew, I was a nurse was taking me to my, what some woman, who took a hold of me, and I looked in her eyes, and she went into she kind of went into shock, uh-huh. stopped for a few minutes, and and then I realized, oh, this is a mother, and I'm supposed to be a baby, so. I figured, oh, well, I'm stuck. I might as well be a baby. I became a baby. Like you can actually remember having that conscious thought? She can remember it, too, because it was a shock to her. He thought she was looking at somebody who was very, very old. Yeah, like an old soul, kind of. Old soul, if you will. I don't know about reincarnation or um, it might be a recurrence. You know, the idea of Nietzsche's eternal recurrence. In other words, your death and your birth are connected by a. Uh, they're, they're like, you know, a wedding band is is has a weld in it. Yeah. You have to have a weld to make the band. And that weld is, look, if you don't remember your own birth, how can you possibly remember the death that preceded it? But if you become conscious in this life, maybe in the next life you're more conscious. So it's like um, it adds up exponentially until finally you get intelligence enough. And I don't mean intelligent like um, the smarts. You get conscious enough, that is, to become uh, radiant. And when you've achieved a certain radiance, then you're done with whatever life chores you've placed before yourself. I really believe we are the makers of our own uh, life choices way before they happen. And it's just that uh, we're not allowed to know the cards. You know, it's like a a gambling game. We're not allowed to know that we're not card counters. You know, maybe I'm a card counter. And I know what's around the corner. I know it's in the future because I remember it. Do you feel like you've lived this same life before? You think that's paranormal, though? I think that's completely normal to remember the future. 
I don't know. I think it's a definition. I think just like, you know, I think we're so constrained by words. Like words don't do us justice well, sometimes. Of course. They absolutely don't. They're the yeah. language of lying. Yeah. So you like know, when I... A word, a, a word is not the thing. So like when you I know, say paranormal... Like yeah, when as you say paranormal, but I mean, I is, know, it, you, is it normal or is it just extraordinary? A, well, I would argue that it's normal yeah. and that people are subpar. People, by by generalities, people are not normal. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, can, look at the state of the world. I can people get behind that. People are just not normal at all, because if they were normal, there'd be none of this shenanigans going on. No war, no struggle like that, and uh, we would all live as Christians in a sense. I mean, as true Christians, I don't think there are any Christians in the world, and the very if there are, they are very few and far between, and they're hidden. So, do you Remember, consider yourself Jesus, a true Christian? A fisherman. Yeah. I wouldn't dare to say Jesus called fishermen and fishermen are are known to get up before anybody else in the middle of the night, prepare their tackle and their bait and their floater and whatever sinker. Then they go out and they meet their friends and they go out on the boat and they go out and they're silent. They don't talk with each other because there's a saying that goes, uh, it's just uh, noisy fishermen catch sick fish. So all this blather and uh, the evangelical movement and all of that uh, shouting from the rooftops about uh, Jesus and uh, salvation is the exact uh, opposite of the true Christian who, as the woman did, puts yeast in her bread and the whole loaf rose. That is, practice your Christianity in secret and the whole life will develop or blossom. Mm-hmm. So I think there are very few actual Christians in this realm. Yeah, we see that borne out by the evidence, don't we? That's right. Well, I think the work on oneself is towards becoming a Christian, but it's a, a arduous path. You know, it's a narrow and uh, your luggage won't fit, <laughs> which means to say your personality traits, uh, your negativity just won't won't suffice. Yeah, it's a world that it's a world without any negativity in it. And a, I think a saint is like a black hole of suffering. If you get close enough to a saint, uh, they absorb your suffering and turn it into a new universe somewhere to a black hole of their own so they eat the suffering of others this is that essentially what jesus did right that's what he did Mm -hmm. that's right he ate the negativity digested it and they scourged his body and uh you know whatever i mean we don't know i wasn't there although i might have been yeah, for all we know, we all might have been, right? That's right. We could yeah. be recurrence uh, from that time. 
and just the outer forms change, but the souls don't. It depends. You know, there are new uh, stars being born in the cosmos, and old stars actually dying and becoming white dwarves. And uh, if they're large enough, then they become black holes again. And there's somewhere there's probably white holes. That's all being spewed out. It's all a cycle, right? Because, you know, stars die, they become nebulous. That's right. Yep. And we're made out of that stuff. All the elements, except for in the early universe, there was only helium, hydrogen. It was mostly hydrogen with some smattering of helium and lithium, and yeah. that was it. It was the supernovas that created everything else. Spread it all around. Yeah, the, the supernovas, the death of the star is the spreading of these higher elements. Yep. You know, like iron. Iron is the uh, last element able to be made in an ordinary size star. Yeah, that's that's the, that's the beginning of the death. Fuel. Well, they collapse. And let's say it's a large star. It collapses. It stops burning hydrogen and burns uh, whatever carbon. And then it collapses again. And the final element, it's spews out, it ends up as iron, which is in the middle. Nickel and iron are the center of the earth because that's the heaviest element naturally made. That's why our earth's core, the earth is like an actually shaped like a pear or like an egg. Right. It's not really round. It's a spheroid. Yeah, it's not flat as some people say. (laughs) Yeah, it's totally flat. You know, <laughs> for yeah. some people, it's just concave. Yeah. Do you feel like? Do you feel, Richard? Do you feel like you lived like the, the same life before? Do you feel like you've lived this life over and over again? Oh, I wouldn't be so hesitant to say no. Sure. I think I've been been here enough to know that probably it's that's probably the case Mm -hmm. how do you feel like this is reflected reflected in your music like this these ideas and and your art i wish i think my uh, you know some of the stuff is is double entendre and triple entendre, but uh, really myself as a songwriter, I'm, I mean, it's, uh, I don't write off the mm-hmm. really fantastic stuff. It's pretty ordinary rock. I gotcha. Media by. Have you ever had like an Adam? body experience in your life? Has this ever happened to you? Yeah, when I was about two. I what what happened? From the body. I had stopped breathing for a long time. Not, um, not holding the breath. Just finding a nice, comfortable, like, look, I'll, I'll take you through it now. Did you take a nice breath? 
take 10% extra and exhale so you don't empty the lungs completely. Find a place where the breath stops on its own and then just rest there until the impulse to breathe comes from the body again. So I'm going to do it now. And I'm not going to hold it any, not going to cease from breathing for that long because we're on the radio. Sure, I got you. <laughs> but nor, normally I cannot breathe for several minutes. Have you had an out-of-body and experience what, like what, after that? Yeah, due to that. Mm-hmm. It's in the book, the, that first experience of, I was floating up towards the ceiling. I was tethered to the body by a kind of umbilicus or umbilical cord, which was kind of stretchy. And I wondered if I could go through the walls and uh, if, if I could, if I went too far with the stretchy thing connecting me to the body snap, and then I'd be lost in space. Yeah. And then I, you know, who knows what spiritual entities I might meet. And I was not prepared to uh, run into any uh, bad guys, so I tried to get back in the body and, frankly, couldn't Mm. for several minutes. I just would pass through it like a pendulum or a ghost. I'd go to get in it. So finally I realized I have to to have the ethereal body take the same position that the physical body's in and just stay there. And when that when I got that done, I found some sort of like snaps or, um, you know, like the bolts on a uh, diving suit mm-hmm. or the snaps on a pair of Levi's. There were like eight of them snaps that connected the one body to the other, the inner body to the outer physical body. And then I decided that I had better breathe and I had literally forgotten how because I mean I was two years old I hadn't been breathing that long right (laughs) so it was not it was not a habit that I was like able to pick up just like like that and I started panicking and I finally got in gear and and gasped the breath and then that that was the last time I cessated from breathing for that length of time it was probably um you know, lack of oxygen in the brain and the beginning of uh, death. Sure. Who knows? I don't know. The body certainly survived. I'm, I'm 66 and I'm halfway there. You know, more life is packed into the older, the younger years and the older years. Who the hell knows? I certainly don't. <laughs> yeah. I used to say I was going to live to be, you know, 40. Now I'd say 120. (laughs) I'm getting pretty tired tired of this world. I don't know. I'll stick around as long as I'm needed. There you go. By whatever keep me here to begin with. Because I'm not here on my own volition. That's for damn sure. Do you feel kind of like you're a visitor here? Yeah, 
yeah, a visitor or uh, a subject of some force that, you know, that spun me off into this creature. Yeah. It's called Richard. Yeah. That mm-hmm. I, uh, that it walks and talks and has a personality and uh, does things, and uh, I just stand by and watch. So I want to go, go back to something you said earlier. You you think that we come into this world kind of with a plan, but that we most people forget it when we get oh, yeah. here? Yeah, there's an old myth about that little space over your upper lip where there's a little dip under the nose. Mm-hmm. It said that that's where your guardian angel presses and says, shh, <laughs> as you're coming down. And you drink the drink of lethe, which is, uh, I guess, Latin for forgetfulness. And uh, then you can't remember what you, what you had decided was going to happen to you. But do you think we choose our fate while we're here? Yeah, I think that when you when you die, you go back to a committee of your of guardian angels and uh, hovering devils and your forebears and your progeny and uh, you soul all circle kind of a thing. Give give you the yeah, give you the book of life and the uh, you read through it and you decide for yourself what you know. It's like what the hell are we going to do with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You decide. Yeah. You know, and then because then you're then you're um you're objective. You're not looking at yourself personally. Right. You're seeing your, the life you've lived from outside of it and you can make an assessment that's more correct. That is to say it's non-judgmental and yet it uh, has judgment involved in it. So then you go back and you say, well, look, I think I have to go back to Earth for to be really treated bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some people end up in wheelchairs, you know, but they don't know it. So they're, they're angry. Right. Whereas other people are in wheelchairs and they recognize that God must love them more deeply than ever to allow them to suffer this way. I don't have an to me suffering is part of the game and it's an essential part uh, you know when you paint a masterpiece you probably trouble the canvas and the canvas says i'm a good picture leave me be like um and the master says no i'm painting my masterpiece and i'm not going to leave you alone damn it and scrapes the paint off and starts painting again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or the blacksmith who's making a sword and the sword gets plunged. First it's in the flames and then it's pounded with a hammer and then it's plunged into cold water. And this goes round and round and round and the sword says, I'm sharp enough for Christ's sake, leave me alone. Folded a thousand times. The blacksmith knows knows he's, he's making a very important sword, you know, and it has to be just so. So he he tortures the damn steel or whatever the Damascus steel, and uh, you know that's what it's like to become a diamond in the earth too. It's a piece of coal that's crushed 
into becoming this gem. And all gemstones are like that. They're created under the pressure and for a human being to become a man or a woman in the full sense of the word, it requires the pressure of the negativity of the quote-unquote world because there's certainly enough negativity around that if you can stand it and if you can find uh, contentment with that negativity that you have no jurisdiction over, then it presses in on you and you become uh, adamant, which is a, another word you can look up, adamantine. means hard as a diamond or harder, even. And then we're back to the Buddhist idea of the, the tantric idea of the diamond body or the second or third body, according to Mr. Rajiv, or the fourth body, which is the soul itself. It has to be made in each life anew because you can lose it. It makes a lot of sense. Hard we, to we, win. Yeah, we talk about tortured artists yeah, a lot. To, you know, you, you can't you can't really achieve anything in this world, I think, without adversity. That's right. I agree with that completely. God knows we all go through all that. Like, you oh, know, when you make a record, of it. you have a, a song in your head, an idea, and you've got to get it through the materiality of whatever it is you're working with, whether you're a sculptor, a painter, or a musician. You've got to work with reality and the tools that it offers you to craft something that closely resembles as much as possible your dream. You know, either when I say dream, I mean your idea. Right, your vision. Of it. And uh, <clears throat> the, the world and the, the material itself doesn't want to obey you. The clay does not want to obey the sculptor. You know, he has to put it on, a, the potter has to put it on a wheel and feed it with water and tor torture it as it spins around going, let me alone, you know, I was a nice lump of clay and now what are you doing to me? Making me into a cup <laughs> where the important part is the em the important part is the emptiness. Yeah. I have other things poured into me, but I'm not them. So what am I? Oh, there's that good, good riddle. What is... Uh, I can remember it. I'll think about it. And maybe I'll tell you what, I'll give you the riddle. What is greater than God, more than the devil? The rich want not for it. And if you eat it, the poor have it. And if you eat it, you die. Nothing. That's right. Nothing. It's a good puzzle. Yep. <laughs> you know, Richard, a lot's been written about you and about television and all that. You know, I wanted to talk about some of that, but, you know, I wanted to ask you, in yeah. light of some of the things that you're telling us, I mean, you know, I know what it says on the back of the book about, you know, you influence these people or I influence don't. those people. <laughs> but, like, you know, how do you see your own influence? You know, I mean, like, do you, do you, do you see, like, your time with was, television and, and, you know, 
come, you know, being one of those yeah. pioneers and quote unquote punk rock. Do you see that, you know, do you see yeah. that as, a, as the important thing for you or, or are other things more important for you? No, that's certainly important. Um, that was one of my, in fact, that was my main aim when I was like a late teenager. Right. To have this occur. So that was a major life aim. And uh, it occurred, and I'm very, very proud of it. And, uh, you know, it continues in my own work musically. I, I also paint, and uh, I don't do any sculpture or anything, but um, now I've written this book, so it seems to be doing pretty well and is thought of nicely, which is a you know, good feeling. I kind of put myself out there and uh, yeah. the truth and it, you know, and it's, I lay down to go to sleep and I think, what have I done to myself? Anybody can read my book and know me or sort of know Richard anyway. Hmm. A life that Richard Lloyd has lived so far. Well, you're I a real intelligent, real, real eloquent guy. Maybe you should Think about writing more. Well, that's what a few people have said. I don't know what the hell to write about, though. You know, I don't. I I don't read fiction as a rule. I read, uh, and I haven't read anything now in three years. I don't know why. My eyes got. Uh, I just read to death. You know, on uh, uh, all the sciences, and I loved school, and uh, you know. And I read textbooks and dictionaries and thesauruses and anything I could get my hands on. For I would walk reading. I would uh, practically read in my sleep. But um, I haven't been reading fiction for a long time, and I don't. I don't know what to write about. You know, I've done my bit with the memoirs, so yeah. that's done. I could write another one in 30 years, part two, from 60 to 90. (laughs) (laughs) How long did it take you to write this, to write the book? A couple of years, actually, because I was, I procrastinate, which is one of the things I'm, you know, one of my own uh, peculiarities is I'm a procrastinator. I, I did a little bit, and then I forget about it for a month and then I'd do some more stories and I'd forget about it for a couple of months and I tried to get a co-writer or an editor to help me or somebody to just ask me questions about my life. Like, you know, uh, I spent uh, 12 hours talking to Legs McNeil and he only used the dirtiest, juiciest, gossipy (laughs) parts of our conversation, which which was, he did that with everybody. And it yeah. was brilliant. I mean, that still sells like hotcakes, you know? Yeah, I've, I've read that book. Like. The, you talk about the... the, the, the my book. You talk about Please Kill Me? The book? Yeah, yeah. Please Kill Me. Yeah. Well, my book's a little like Please Kill Me because it's oral. Sure. It's stories. You know, it's just written by one person instead of uh, the, a couple hundred Right. But what he did was sheer genius, you know. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm a big history person. I love, you know, I love that kind of mm-hmm. oral history. And your book definitely is that. It's an oral history of that time period. And well, it's got that time period in it, the earlier decades too. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you talk about you, you talk about meeting Hendrix in the book. One or two. Sure. You know, I never talked about that for the longest time until my friend uh, Velvet had passed. He's the one that was uh, Jimmy's only guitar student and uh, protege, so so to speak, who was my best friend when I was a uh, you know my mid to late teens. Yeah. He was one of my very best friends. So I got to meet Jimmy and got to go to the studio with him a couple times. Not to play, but just sure. as a guest to sit and That's really They cool. used to have people come in for the first hour or so while they listened to stuff from the day before, before they actually got to work. So I got to hear a whole bunch of stuff like that. It was pretty cool. There was no drugs, as I recall, and there was no alcohol, as I recall. It was all very, you know, straight business-like studio work. And it must have been doing, um, I remember, Isabella. So yeah. it had to have been after, during the uh, Electric Lady Land and after that, right after that. And I was being very like at the time. I understand that you like did kind of like an album that's kind of like a tribute album to Hendrix. Yeah, called the Jamie Nevitt story. It's all Hendrix songs. Yeah, ones from his first two that are short songs. Not the longest one is like five minutes or something, six or so. Are you experienced and? uh, there was supposed to be bold access boulders love segueing into are you experienced but the foundation the Hendrix people wouldn't allow me to do that. They said I had to cut it into two songs and uh, they said don't fuck with the songs. So yeah. I rang with them. That sucks. Oh, yeah, right. They don't mind that. Are you gonna beat me? <laughs> <laughs> can you come over and beat me? <laughs> we we might. <laughs> All right. Uh, about television, you know, I mean, ton of influence. First time I heard that album, I, I just instantly fell in love with it. And like I was telling you before yeah. when we were talking that I think that punk rock is kind of calling it punk rock is kind of a disservice to it because it's just such a. Oh, well, you know. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I got gotcha. you. The record's still in print and it still sells, and no matter what they want to call it, it's fine by me. You yeah. know, it, if it come out at a different era, it would have been called grunge. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you know, different punk, jazz, grunge, rock, pop whatever you want to call it, call it monkey food, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, Barky Moon is such a beautiful album. I mean, it's just, it's, yes, it's it really it's one of the, record. one of the best, one of the best. I mean, and, like, I, I honestly think that in my opinion, that just like, I think television should have been bigger 
than you guys were. And why do you think it yeah, wasn't well, it didn't like why do you think television didn't do as well? One of us one of us was lazy. Yeah. One of us was incredibly lazy and wanted things given to him on a silver platter or else he didn't care about it. And yeah. uh, it's a pit, you know, that's the way it went. And I suffered that for 35, 36 years. So what did you do? Right. In the very, very beginning, sang a couple of the songs that we did. But the, and Richard Hell sang some, and uh, Tom sang some. But after a while, it was just Tom. Then Richard left, and uh, and it was just Tom, and he wouldn't let me sing. So he was the voice of television, quote unquote. And I think you know uh, he has an interesting voice, but geez, yeah. except for Marky Moon, pretty goofy. Was he uh, was he just kind of like just a strong will personality? You just couldn't get anything across to him. Uh, he's very willful, yeah. very strong will. He won't let anybody tell him what to do. So he's never had a manager that's worth their salt. Yeah, because he wouldn't work. He wouldn't work. He won't work. He just takes the easy path to where the money is, and then that's he'd rather read books and smoke cigarettes. I think he might have stopped smoking cigarettes, but all he ever did was smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and read books and, uh, you know, hang around the, the strand. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be up at the strand in January the 25th. I doubt he's going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you guys don't speak very often. Tom and I? No. Yeah. Not, not a, not, not since I left. Yeah. Which I mean, you actually left when, like, because you guys got back together. What ninety two? Ninety two through yeah. two thousand and seven. Wow, that's that's a while. That's, yeah. I, that's a long time, and we did a lot of shows in that time, and we did that one record for Capital, which is, you know, okay. Yeah. It's not Marky Moon. It's okay. It has some very good songs on it to play live. It was a lot of fun. So, have you ever done any of your own stuff outside of television, Richard? What's that? Have you ever done any of your own music outside of television? Just of course I have. You're not familiar with my work. I, I, I I, honestly, I got to say, I'm not outside of television. I don't know. Yeah, I think most people are like that. You know. I've had a very, I've been, uh, had misfortune in my career. I'm definitely going to check so it out after talking to you, though. I have several times, uh, you know, been, had success coming at me uh, full speed ahead. And uh, for some reason or other with my own doing or others, uh, it's been not happened. So that's. That's just the way it is. But yeah. I'm uh, I'm touring in April in the Northeast. Oh, nice! And uh, you know, I've been playing around the Southeast in the last couple of years, 
played Nashville a couple of times. Can't remember where exactly, but Atlanta and Athens and uh, Raleigh and uh, those places. Nice. Right on. Well, I'll look out for you in Nashville, man. I'll definitely come and see you if you're here. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm going to probably put together a band here. I have a New York band, and we're doing some Northeast dates in April. And I'm also have a bass player and uh, who's got a drummer we're going to try out here in Chattanooga. And uh, we'll see how it goes. Nice. What day is of the week is it? Uh, By the way, I didn't ever know Tuesday? what to ask. Tuesday? It's a Tuesday. It's what? Tuesday? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. This straightened out my whole life. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, you see. I barely know the date. But the day of the week, I don't know, hardly ever know. <laughs> yeah. But I never barely need to know. This week, I need to know. See, I wasn't expecting your call because I forgot what day of the week we were going to do this thing. <laughs> I just don't think like that. I don't think I don't think in terms of time like that. I don't think there's any such thing as time. So, well, you know what, Richard? You, you, you've you've earned lot. you've earned that, brother. <laughs> you you've earned that that uh, <laughs> you have earned that uh, privilege to not worry about it. <laughs> you know, I. W- I wear a watch, but it just goes round and round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, like, what's what's life? What's what's life for you now? I mean, other than not knowing the day of the week, not having to know it, like you know, living in uh, Chattanooga. And... For six, last last couple of weeks, I've been playing guitar six to eight hours a day. Yeah, wow. And I had a doctor. They took blood to do some kind of alchemical <laughs> look at something or see if there's some special qualities to my blood that might be interesting for the specialty that those the doctors got. You can't yeah. just go, I mean, I have a general practitioner and he's okay, but he's also got a specialty. Everybody has a damn specialty now. There are no more Renaissance men yeah. Yeah, I tell you, I'm trying to get something. I'm trying to get something done myself, and it's like it's like pulling teeth, man. You need a dentist for that. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> well, Richard, man, I, I'm really, I'm really glad, you know, that we we got you to come on. It's been it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. And I'm glad that you're still well, out there and you're doing what you're doing and and uh you know, and it's also cool that you're pretty you're pretty that, close by. Oh. Yeah, I'm not far away. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we got to talk and I hope you're able to use uh some or all of it. Oh yeah, we'll use podcast. all of it. <laughs> well, this is the first time for you on a podcast, right. so well we're gonna close it this is. we're gonna you'll, close this section out. Me. Oh, no, you're good, man. We're going to close this section out. And, uh, guys, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal.
So, dude, I know you're just like freaking out over there because that was awesome for you. I would bleep that out. <laughs> but I want to start this off by saying we had a brief little, uh, we, you know, we always talk to the guests before yeah. we start recording. And, right. And and Richard was, uh, he was cool to call him, but he, he was very... Um, very against a couple terms that that we threw out there, mainly conspiracy theory and paranormal, which being conspiranormal are kind yeah. of foundations of the show, which after we got to know him, I, I, I understand that a little bit better. Like um I think I think he defines conspiracy theory as something that's not real that people will kind of sit around in their basements and talk about. Which I define it differently, but the connotation is out there, and it's been out there since the seventies. Like, oh, this is just you know conspiracy theorists, like, right? You know, it's kind of got it. It's picked up this negative connotation. It's not like it doesn't mean what it actually like the the um, the literal definition of it should mean, which is just people getting together to underhandedly do some kind of nefarious deed and conspiring together to create that or whatever. Which does happen. It's been proven to happen throughout history and should have an eye kept on it. And the other one being paranormal, which is meaning outside of the realm of science, which he tends to think of everything that is in the universe as being normal, not paranormal, which I, I think we both totally agree with. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. You know, a lot of things that are considered paranormal maybe are normal and are just outside of our current understanding. And I agree with the fact that conspiracy theory not all the time is a positive thing. I mean, there's a lot of conspiracies that we've True. talked about, especially like we were discussing in the in the in the intro with this article that I'm gonna finish up, you know, that that you know, that that have a negative connotation. Absolutely and weird stuff. You know, that that, you know, like we as I mentioned, Dr. Eric Kurlander, you know, how so it's not it's it's kind of a loose fitting term, but it's also in this in this respect of how language just really limits us. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a good example of semantics getting in the way of communication. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to explain. But once we got further into the interview, you know, it oh, was, it was great. Oh, I, I'm so glad he came on. I'm so glad you got him on. Yeah, yeah, I am too. I am too. I mean, the the guy was pretty instrumental in you know beginning punk rock and being at CBGBs back in the day, and yeah. But we didn't end up talking about a lot of that, and I think a lot of the, of course, I think a lot of what people are going to talk to him in interviews is going to be about television. Well, we talked about a lot of the more quote unquote paranormal stuff that right. he's well, had happen to or him or in his life, if you will. Yep. Uh, kind of elements to it. Yep. Yeah. And the Buddhism stuff was interesting. Yeah. All the Eastern philosophy stuff. Like, I'm way into all of that. Yeah. You really helped out on that one. Well, and the Carl Jung stuff and the, you know, the the deeper philosophical stuff. Like, I love that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, he's a different kind of guest, too. You know, yeah. this is someone from more like the, the, the musical world. And, you know, someone that I saw, hey, you guys got a book and, I was like, you know, when I messaged him on Facebook, I didn't think he was going to answer me, honestly. But, you know, he did. So we got him on the show. And then he forgot about us. But <laughs> <laughs> well, but he right. still did it anyway, yeah. Yeah, to totally. his credit. So, I mean, it, uh, I felt that it, it went well. 
it was a little shorter interview than everybody's used to, but like I've said before, people need to hear us more anyway. Yeah. So it is what it is. Um, but yeah, I was real, I was real happy to have him on and we'll, and very cool too that he, you know, was my home for my hometown, yeah. which is interesting. You know, how, 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 how weird is that? Um, but I will continue with this article. Uh, we can kind of continue discussing it. Uh, but again, we're discussing this article from the Southern Poverty Law Center, kind of just dis- dissecting it. Um, yeah, you promised me some Atlantean stuff, and stuff. yeah, yeah, we're 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 getting to that. Okay. Um, this is a Atlantis aliens and ancient astronauts. Nice alliteration there. Uh, in 1882, a decade before the Smithsonian debunked the race of the mound builders, a Minnesota congressman and writer named Ignatius Loyola, Loyola Donnelly published Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, which I have a copy of, by the way. <laughs> it's a very interesting little book. The book provided another and more elaborate theory of an Aryan-looking supercivilization that diffused technology to the rest of the world. Donnelly's book, based on mentions of Atlantis by Plato, cut the template for the sci-fi-tinged lost white civilization theories now experiencing a revival on cable television and beyond. But just as Atlantis theory gained traction following the debunking of the mound builders, so have theories of ancient Aryan astronauts superseded Atlantis with the mapping of the oceans and their floors. When there was nowhere left to explore, a group of thinkers started to... Project these ideas into the sky, says Colavito, the historian. Today, ancient astronauts are one of the more elaborate theories in pseudo-history with a racist component. In the 1960s and 70s, Eric Von Daniken and Zachariah Sitchin, our favorite, put a twist on myths about Aryan visitors from a lost civilization predating the last ice age. These visitors to Mesoamerica didn't come from Atlantis but from the sky, Bestsellers like Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods, Seven Million Sold and Counting, popularized the idea that Aryan-looking aliens bought science and technology to primitive peoples around the world. In recent years, Graham Hancock has repackaged ancient astronaut theory for a new generation in his best-selling Fingerprints of the Gods and through steady work as a History Channel talking head. Today's far right is divided on ancient astronaut theory. On the one hand, it denies agency to brown-skinned peoples and features Aryan-looking heroes, which they consider good things, but it also deprives ancient human Aryans of the accomplishments credited to them so lavishly in Atlantis and other theories. (laughs) What a paragraph. (laughs) Consider the case of Patrick Chouinard, a prolific writer who operates the alt-history sites renegadetribune.com and ancientarians.com. The latter site symbol, the Norse rune, was also the logo of the Nazi Ananarba. Like the Nazis, the sites are dedicated to recapturing a lost, pure Aryan civilization, one respectful of but not dependent on alien life. In September, Chouinard cast a critical eye on the upcoming 10th season of the History Channel's Ancient Aliens in an article titled, Are Ancient Alien Theorists Selling Our People Short? Chouinard believes they are. He cites an old episode of the H2s in search of aliens in which the hosts Giorgio Sukalos and David Childress explore the alleged mystery of some elongated skulls discovered in Peru. 
Tornard scoffs at the host's conclusion that the skulls belong to aliens. Rather, he argued, reconstruction saw a very Nordic facial structure with a huge cranium. This could be proof, furthermore, of a separate branch of the white race that went along its own evolutionary path over 5,000 years ago. And who, you might wonder, does Trunard believe is behind the ancient alien theory that is selling his people short? The Jews, writes Trunard, are using the ancient alien camp to confound our race to the point that we deny our own accomplishments. The white race did not need ancient aliens to build our ancient civilizations or to found other civilizations in remote corners of the earth. Our race is capable of so much more. Wait, wait, wait. Sorry, I, I got lost there for a second. Yeah, it's what? a little it's a little confusing. Wait, wait, wait. What what um what ancient accomplishments did, did the white people not do without aliens that I'm missing here? Okay, well he's saying that ancient alien theory is selling people selling his people, meaning white people right. short. I, I agree that ancient aliens theory uh sells the Egyptian people's short. I it, absolutely it, 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 and the South American people's short. It, it sells all of uh, mankind short. <laughs> but, but how specifically does it sh- sell sell the white man short? Right. I well, that, I think that's the only part that he cares about. Right, which is the part that I'm not understanding. And, and right what now. he said, what this guy is saying, well, what Southern Poverty Law Center is saying, he's saying this uh, Schoenard guy, Patrick Schoenard, is he saying that this was all these amazing building projects and all these things were all part of the the ancient the that they were all built by ancient Aryans not ancient aliens the pyramids all of it how he why? would say how? he would say the dom- I'm just, I'm just, his he's saying the dominant <laughs> race is white and therefore they built all this stuff and that sells the ancient the Aryan people short if you attribute it to aliens. Right. I understand that, but why? Because he's some racist right wing wacko. That's why. Well, okay, there's gotta be some like okay, okay sorry. Continue. <laughs> it, it gets confusing. Well, like this this whole like Okay, so in 2018, it is dangerous in alt ancient history circles to completely discount ancient aliens. Toynard knows this. Rather than risk alienating his readers, he concedes, it is very possible that visitations from extraterrestrials did happen in ancient times, but I will not conclude that the majority of our accomplishments as a race can be attributed to extraterrestrials. Okay. UFOs and refracted anti-Semitism. Massive and hopelessly intricate cover-ups. Nefarious alien races with gnomish physical features. Tales of secret Nazi super technologies. It was always inevitable that the UFO and far right scenes would end up in bed together. I don't know if that's necessarily a correct statement. It was always inevitable. UFO culture casts a shadow everything in the post war years, and as noted above, the far right has never been a stranger to the supernatural. In Culture of Conspiracy, the historian Michael Barkin locates the early 1990s as the decade this convergence accelerated. Books like William Cooper's Behold a Pearl Horse and journals published by George Osiris Hatton described UFO conspiracies that fit snugly into the New World Order conspiracy template, heavily influencing that decade's militia movement. Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh was reportedly a fan of Cooper's radio show. But the seeds of this union are much deeper in the post-war record. One of the most important early UFO writers in the early 1950s, William Dudley Pelley, 
was an American occultist and fascist. His most important disciple, George Hunt Williamson, produced Byzantine UFO theories that incorporated anti-Semitic themes. Williamson's 1958 book, UFOs Confidential, claimed every government on Earth was under the control of a handful of mostly Jewish international bankers, which for some reason the author believed included U.S. Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter. Pelley and Williamson's successors are not always or even so often so blatantly anti-Semitic, but the fingerprints of anti-Semites are visible in the works of influential modern UFO writers like Jim Mars and Jim Keith. Now, I don't know about that. I, I, I don't know if that's about... I don't know about Jim Keith. Jim Mars? Eh. That might be pushing it. That he was anti-Semitic. These fingerprints appear in what Barkin calls refracted racism and anti-Semitism in which old tropes are repackaged as an episode of the X-Files. This repackaging often includes not very subtle distinctions between benevolent aliens, tall Aryan-looking, and malevolent aliens, short, grotesque, often in league with international bankers. See, that's interesting. That's actually a good point. Because you do see that in the UFO, in some of the UFO, like the contactee movement. Okay, where the the ones that want to bring us light and love and peace are these Nordic looking aliens, the blonde hair, blue eyed aliens. And then the ones that are short and uh, weird looking, those are the, the the bad ones. And they're in they're in league with the Illuminati or some kind of shout, you know, which is often put in put in place with like the Jews and the bankers and all this stuff. Okay. Yeah. Now this, that, that is, is, that is a very good point. Now I don't know that necessarily that that's a UFO thing because that's more of a, you could really put that more in the contact T or the abductee movement, by just saying like you're looking at unidentified flying objects, but then again, people putting their own kind of, a lot of people putting their own kind of spin on and their own kind of biases and prejudices on, on this stuff. More than anyone else, the British conspiracist David Icke has published, uh, popularized the alien version of New World Order conspiracy. The former sportscaster's elaborate theory is the Sgt. Pepper's album cover of the genre, featuring the Masons, the Vatican, the Illuminati, the House of Windsor. Everyone is there. At the center of the theory is an alien race of lizard people from the fifth dimension. Though Ike has always denied trafficking in anti-Semitism, he has endorsed the protocols of the elders of Zion, the famous forgery and foundational text of modern anti-Semitism, choosing it to call the Illuminati protocols. This is Barkun's refraction in action, and Ike's shadow is long indeed visible across the far-right media spectrum. Now, I would kind of halfway agree with the whole David Icke thing and saying that the reptilians are really just kind of a code word for Jews that has been said before. Uh, there's actually back in the early two thousands, same guy that wrote, um, he wrote the book, uh, many stare at goats. And he did this whole thing about, uh, what was his name? I can't remember it now, but he did this, he did this whole thing where a whole series where he followed extremists um, and he followed actually David Icke 
And when the, there was this group, I think the Anti-Defamation League in Canada was going after David Icke. This was the Jewish Anti-Defamation League. Was going after David Icke and saying that he was actually, when he said lizard people, he meant Jews. Now, um, John Ronson, that's his name. Now, Ronson, who's Jewish himself, actually said that uh, he believed that when Ike meant lizard people, he thought Ike was crazy enough to believe that he really meant lizard people. So who knows on that one? All right. Hollow earth secret Nazi labs and the South pole. And I think this is the last one. Another inevitable development in post-war conspiracy subculture was the rise of a belief in secret Nazi bases underneath Antarctica. The idea of a hollow or inner earth was a key tenet of 19th century occultism. And in the post-war years, it reemerged as a setting for escaped Nazi scientists working in secret technology and weapons labs. Both of those statements are true. The legend took root during the mid-1970s, nurtured by the Canadian neo-Nazi Ernst Zundel, who argued that Nazis invented flying saucers and had taken their breakthrough technology to bases deep under the South Pole. The Third Reich was interested in a possible base at the South Pole, and a few high-level Nazis did escape to Argentina, whose national territory includes a slice of Antarctica extending to the South Pole. Zundel and his successors have infused these facts with Victorian inner-earth legends and then marinated them over po- multiple viewings of the 1968 B-flick, They Saved Hitler's Brain. <laughs> Versions of the theory remain popular on neo-Nazi alt-history sites, and in recent years, British tabloids like the Mirror and Daily Star have found clickbait gold in spreading them. The story's persistence led Colin Summerhays of Cambridge University's Polar Research Institute to look into the matter. In a 2006 edition of the Polar Record, Summerhays presented his heavily footnoted and researched conclusion that secret Nazi bases do not exist and have never existed on or below Antarctica. As exhaustive as it was, it is unlikely Summerhays' study has had much impact among the theory's adherents. It was, after all, competing with an ever-expanding glut of hidden history books, podcasts, and websites. One of many such titles to appear that year was SS Brotherhood of the Bell, the Nazis' incredible secret technology penned by Joseph P. Farrell, a prolific alt-historian and regular on Red Ice Radio. I think the problem with this, Rob, this article is that they raise some really good points, but then some of the examples of the people that they they use just don't really, from what I know about them, don't really fly to support those points. I think that's the main problem. But this stuff is out there. Yeah, that, I mean, it's not what it's not like completely invalid. There's definitely, um, I mean, I can see that side to it, the, you know, the racist undertones and the anti-Semitic stuff and everything that you mentioned there. It's, I don't think it's what most of us are in this for. I think that it's kind of capitalized on by people who are, who have that bias and that prejudice to begin with. You know, there's the whole, um, like we were saying, even it's kind of like, invaded into kind of pop culture in, in a certain extent, you know, with the, the Aryans being the good guys and the grotesque whatever aliens being the, you know, representation of the, um, you know, downfall of 
you know, average Joe or whatever. Um, yeah. And I, I, I mean, it may, I don't think that's because it's an, an, an innate element of it. I think that it's, um, I think that's people's fears being projected onto an existing phenomenon more than anything else. You know, I think, I think a lot of people are worried about the world and their place in the world and it's just kind of natural that 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 sort of thing would would bubble into it more than I think it's an actual part of the phenomenon itself, right? But it's still it's an it's interesting from a lot of perspectives. Yeah, it is, and it's definitely something to be aware of whenever yeah. whenever you're surfing the internet and you're looking at these different kind of theories. Just be aware of where certain ideas come from. And whether those ideas are something that you can be comfortable with exploring or not. It's always important, I think, to understand that. That ideas are just like people or animals. They they have parents. And they don't come out of just nowhere. They have a definite string of precedence to them. So that would be my kind of um, warning to everybody. Just be careful. Because it's real easy for a lot of these shows that, you know, like it mentions Red Ice Radio. I've a couple people that I know that we know have told me that they're not happy with Red Ice Radio because they seem to be really going really far to the right. And I mean, into the racist kind of stuff. And it's, it's rather unfortunate that that has to seep in. Yeah. But it's there. And we're, we're here, we're here to find the truth, not to justify right. our truth. Right. And I think that's the bottom line. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I think that we will call it, sir. I think that we've uh, we've exhausted it tonight. So we have so many good shows for you guys lined up. You don't even know. Yeah, it's gonna be a great year. We do, we do, and I'm working hard on getting shows done. And like I said, we do have a you know episode 200 is coming down rapidly, coming down the pike. And so we've got a uh, we've got an event planned for that, guys. So. And we're we're trying to do the YouTube thing. We're we're posting up as quickly as we can. Right. Uh, we're we're very backlogged at this point, obviously, because we're getting close to 200 episodes. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of work to to make videos for all, but we're working on it. And I just wanted to say real quick, I'm going to um, I'm going to do some some begging here for all of you. <laughs> um, we've got some really great iTunes reviews recently, and. Um, that that helps the show so much, so much more than you guys even realize. It helps, like it, it motivates us and it brings other people to us. And you know, I'm, I'm not going to pitch our um, our Patreon account or our you know any of the little things tonight. All I want, all I want from you is if you have 45 seconds of your life to spare, is just to go on iTunes or to Stitcher and just give us a five star review and just a little blurb about why you like the show. And we're so grateful for those every time we get one. 
Yeah, and as I understand it, iTunes like the 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 way it's rated, like it raises everybody in the in the standings too. Yeah, they 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 makes look at it, that makes stuff people like, more like visible. they think it's really important, and we think it's really important. It, like I said, it, it it really drives us. Like that's that's the main thing we get out of this is just user feedback. You know, you guys like reaching out to us. So that's a really quick, easy way for you guys to do it to support the show, and we love those of you who have already done that. So thank you so much. Yeah, we got a we got a couple. We did get a couple of good ones uh, very very recently, and uh, much appreciated to the people that have left those and. To the people that have gone on to Patreon, yeah, and left us several new Patreon subscribers recently too. So. Yep, and tell everybody where they can find that. It's uh, Patreon.com/slash/ConspiraNormal. We've got a bunch of bonus episodes up there. We got other little tiers. You know, there's there's wall, conspiracy wallpapers, and there's we got T-shirts. We got other stuff you can you can sign up for. And um, if you if you, you know, if you don't want to go through all that trouble and you just want to do a one-time contribution, you can do that at our website, which is ConspiraNormal.com. Absolutely. All right, Rob. Well, I think we're going to close out the show. And, guys, thank you so much. And uh, we will be back next time on Conspiranormal. Yeah. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.